0: Sylvia talked last night on the theme of impermanence. The fact that in our outside life among the people we know everything is subject to loss to change to decay. People have been reporting on this also in the interviews a number of people have come and said that when their awareness is clear and they turn their attention to a thought it dissolves or when they become aware of a pain in the body they see the transitory nature, they see the uh, unsolid nature of that sensation. And Even turning our minds to different emotional states when the awareness is clear, sometimes those states dissolve upon looking at them. Ananda, who was the Buddha's cousin and his attendant for many years, once asked the Buddha, what do you mean by the world? The word in Pali for world is loka. It means realm also. What do you mean by the world? And the Buddha replied with a pun. He replied, it disintegrates. And the word for disintegrates in Pali is paloka it disintegrates, therefore it is called the world or loka. This really refers to all our sense experience, which we can see when we look closely in retreat the nature of arising and passing a moment-to-moment level at every sense door that we investigate. When we start to see that momentary nature of all our experience, it can be quite unsettling As Sylvia said last night, it can lead us into fear, upset. In one particular system of practice, it's said that following this direct insight into impermanence is a period of practice that's marked by fear and dread. And it rather provokes a crisis in the spiritual journey, out of which arises a tremendous urge for freedom, and that then leads in that very direction. So this can be very deeply felt in our practice, the immediacy of impermanence and how it takes away the solid ground that we thought we knew, that we thought we rested upon. And out of that can come an urgency to find, is there somewhere in our experience, is there a dimension that isn't touched, by disintegration, by transiency, by change. Maybe there is. After all, impermanence is not what philosophically we could call an ultimate truth. The Buddha, ever precise in his language, said that it was only a characteristic of existence. Impermanence is a descriptor of that which exists. So a really ultimate kind of truth should point to something that's beyond existing and not existing. So impermanence isn't that kind of truth. And in fact, the Buddha pointed in his practice and his teaching for our practice Pointed us to discover some more ultimate meaning or ultimate truth in life that can form a true refuge or true security in our life. And this true refuge and true security he talked of as nirvana or in the Pali, Nibbana. The Buddha was loath to be very precise in his descriptions of this state or this dimension, but in one passage in the Samyutta Nikaya, one part of the Pali texts, he gives 33 synonyms for Nibbana, among which are these, the unconditioned, the truth, the other shore, the everlasting, peace, the deathless, safety, freedom, the shelter, the harbor, the refuge, and the beyond. This is about as detailed as he got to speaking about nirvana, but all these words point to a release, a state of freedom, of safety, of refuge beyond change. So I wonder in our practice, where might we look to discover or come upon that refuge that is really beyond change? And that's really what I'd like to explore in the talk tonight. The talk really has two themes. The themes of faith and of awareness. I have to give a little bit of um, disclaimer at the start of the talk. When the Buddha came upon his enlightenment, you may know the story, he almost didn't teach. He spent 49 days after his awakening sitting in the same spot where he had awakened just enjoying uh, the bliss of deliverance, the bliss of liberation, and reflecting on the implications of what he'd found. And he thought in that time, should I teach or shouldn't I? And at first he thought, no, I'm not going to. He said, there won't be many people who will understand. And then he reflected and he thought, oh, my first teacher, he would understand if I told him about this. And then he, uh, with his psychic vision, he turned his eye toward that teacher and he found out that he had died a week ago. He said, shucks, he's not here to understand. But my second teacher was also uh, very clear and wise he would understand. And he turned with his psychic vision to his second teacher and he found that person had just died that day. So who was he going to teach? And he said at this point, This Dhamma that I have discovered is profound, subtle, and hard to understand. Fortunately, as we all know, he went ahead and taught anyway. But this phrase um, I mention here because I won't claim that this talk is either profound or subtle, but it may be extremely hard to understand. (laughs) So, I ask your forgiveness in advance for that. And I really urge you to approach it with a light touch. I'll try to give it with a light touch, and I urge you to receive it with a light touch that lets you take in what makes sense to you and leave behind what doesn't. It's not intended to spur a lot of conceptualization, but rather just if parts of it uh, touch on your own practice, open and use that and let go of all the concepts. The other caveat I I have to make about this talk is we're talking about what doesn't have any form. And so uh, there's no right view on this point. You know, nobody can be definitive in speaking about what doesn't have form, like nirvana. So there are just all these different words are just kind of metaphors or poems to sort of point the mind in a certain direction. And as such, nobody has the final authority, nobody that I've met at any rate. This view of the unconditioned comes primarily from the Thai forest tradition. And it may be really different than the point of view that you'd hear from a Burmese tradition. So I'll be quoting some of the uh, elders in the Thai forest tradition, people that you've heard before like Ajahn Buddhadasa, uh, the group of practitioners which included Ajahn Chah, and Ajahn Mahabua, but realize that not even all uh, Buddhists in our lineage would necessarily agree with this. So, that's okay. It's just one person's opinion. Can hold it like that. My wife's sisters uh, came over to visit last year from Australia. It was their first trip to the States. Actually for one of her sisters it was her first trip more than about 300 miles from her home. First trip out of the country, and first trip out of the state. So we took them to uh, Yosemite, which is a great place, as you probably know, for foreign visitors, because there's nothing like it anywhere else uh, in the world. And of course, they loved it. You know, they loved seeing the wildlife. Uh, we saw some coyote. We saw some deer. Um, we saw smaller animals. And we didn't actually see a bear, unfortunately. But we saw their marks every morning. Because we were camping we were actually in tent cabins in Curry Village and there's a big parking lot there about a hundred cars every morning we'd go out and about five of the cars would have been ripped open by bears (laughs) every single morning and the rangers tell you really clearly don't leave food in your car don't leave anything that looks like food don't leave picnic coolers because they know what those things are don't leave hand lotion don't leave scented products and every morning we'd go out, and four or five cars, the, um, what they really liked to do was to take the minivans and pop out the back window. <laughs> and then they'd crawl in. I guess they knew minivans had children, and children had candy or something. So they got to see bear uh, sort of tracks in the morning, although we didn't see bears themselves. And so it's fun to go to Yosemite to watch the wildlife, and it's almost as much fun to watch the people you know, Yosemite just attracts everybody. Everybody goes to Yosemite. So there are the big tour buses, and they open the doors at Yosemite Falls, and out come all the people. And, they, you know, they seem to have a standard uniform from all over the world, the Bermuda shorts and the video camera hanging off the shoulder, and go around filming anything that moves. The backpackers coming into the uh, backpacking campground, you know, they straggle in from a week in the backcountry not having shaved or washed very appealing looking. And then the climbers who are preparing to go up El Capitan and it's always fun to tune into the climber culture because it's sort of a cross between the Grateful Dead and the U.S. Marines. It's really, it's quite a group. So a lot of different energies. And this was a new group for me. I hadn't seen this particular thing in Yosemite before. It was a group of real, a really diverse group of young people. It looked like they could have been on a YMCA training camp or something. Boys and girls and all sorts of uh, races and ethnic backgrounds. And they joined hands in a circle and put one person in the center of the circle, and that person would um, fall backwards and be caught by the others. You probably know this experience. It's sort of basic sensitivity training. You do it in a team-building exercise if you want to build trust in the group. Somebody just closes their eyes, falls back, and they get caught. It's really quite a revelation when you do it, that you can actually trust other people to that extent and they do catch you. It reminded me, in seeing it there, reminded me of our practice because uh, one is that we're always falling down often in our practice in one way or another it goes well and then we stumble and we kind of fall apart or we fall down but the curious thing is that every time we fall down something catches us something holds us in this mysterious way and as we Uh, go through the days and the weeks in retreat I think one of the things that we really start to have faith in is that it's okay to fall down in practice it's okay to stumble it's okay to lose the thread of mindfulness it's okay to get lost in the chaos of the restless energy the strong bodily waves that come the emotional currents that run through us it's fine to get lost in that because if our intention is to come back eventually it all settles out and we're there and clear and present again. So we just trust more and more in this practice that it's really safe that we can kind of let ourselves go and then we kind of develop more of this quality of just falling back or surrendering. The sense of trust in the basic safety of our experience is what in Pali is known as sadha. Sadha is usually translated as faith, but it also means trust or confidence. Just a basic sense that the universe is a safe place to be. Literally the root of the word sadha means to place one's heart upon. I love this because it goes right to our core. What in our lives do we really place our hearts upon? And All of us have different things. Traditionally, it's said that the Triple Gem is the right place to place your heart upon. The Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. These are our refuges. If these connect for you, that's beautiful. They are refuges. They are safety. They can be trusted. But early in practice these particular words may not have that deep kind of heartfelt connection for us. And then we have to tune in for ourselves where is that gut sense of trust for us? Can we connect with that really deep sense of trusting in the universe? I had a lovely teaching on this quality by Fred Wapipa, whom many of you know. is a Native American elder who teaches at Spirit Rock, often with John Travis, who was here for the first half. And Fred leads um, sweat lodges, which are purification ceremonies in his tradition. The first time I did a sweat lodge with him, just down in the meadow below the dining hall, we all got in and the fires had been in there, the stones had been in there for a while. It was quite hot, and he was explaining to us the spirit with which one enters a sweat lodge, and he was talking about this quality of trust. And he said, in the Indian language, there's no word for hope. No word for hope, just not part of the vocabulary. He said, that's because we know that everything is already all right. So we don't have to think about hope. Everything is already all right. I thought that was an incredible statement coming from a man whose culture has been more or less destroyed over the last 150 years. Everything is already all right. It's a strong expression of that faith and that trust. So the two two questions I'd like us to look at tonight in our practice. One is, what does it mean for us to fall? Or we could say, to let go. And when we do that, what holds us? What do we let go into? What is it that we can really trust in? This quality of letting go, we're really invited to make moment after moment after moment, because that's really what mindfulness is about. What happens when we're not mindful? What's your experience? Reflect on your experience when mindfulness isn't present. It's usually made up of a lot of thoughts, isn't it? When there's not this clear tuning into the present moment, we're usually wandering back and forth between past and future. And those wanderings are driven, they're not just random, But they're usually driven by forces of liking or disliking, of wanting or not wanting. In a very short way, we could say that they're driven by the forces of greed, aversion, and delusion. We could sort of call this shorthand for what the mind does when we're not mindful. And as we talked about in the first half of this retreat, greed, aversion, and delusion are our basic strategies of relating with life when we don't have the quality of trusting in the moment, we use these forces of trying to mold our experience so that life will be a certain way to try to control it. To give up our hopes and fears is really to give up control. This is the challenge that we're invited to in every moment of mindfulness we're invited to let go of trying to shape our experience and instead open to it just as it is, to be with it without changing it, to accept it, to allow it. Another way of saying it is that when we stop trying to control the world we actually give up our individual will. Or you might say more accurately, we refine our will just to be present, to be with what is. We give up that will of trying to shape it, control it. So in that way, we stop making I and mine. When we stop making I and mine, there's a lot of peace. There's a lot of peace. Ajahn Chah has this beautiful line, if you let go a little, there's a little peace. If you let go a lot, there's a lot of peace. And if you let go completely, there's complete peace. This is the letting go of our hope and fear, letting go of control, letting go of I and mine. Ajahn Buddhadasa, who was one of my uh, teachers in Thailand, uh, explained it a different way. And he related it, this letting go of I and mine, really directly to the meaning of Nibbana, the meaning of the unconditioned. The meaning of the word Nibbana is clearly defined as freedom from suffering and as freedom from the mental defilements, which are the causes of suffering. That is, freedom from greed, aversion, and delusion. At any moment that our minds avoid, are void of I and mine, that is Nibbana. This is quite a radical statement. Most of the time in the teachings, Nibbāna is posited as something really far away, some really remote goal that comes at the end of a long, long period of very intensive practice. You know, six weeks is just kind of the foot in the door. But Ajahn-Buddhadasa is making it much more accessible. At any moment that our minds are void of I and mine, that is Nibbāna. For example, at this moment, As you sit reading or listening, you probably have a mind void of the feelings of I and mine because there is nothing engendering those feelings. They are just the words you are hearing for the sake of abandoning I and mine. If there is some voidness, and I merely use the word some, it's not completely or unchangeably void, then you are dwelling within the sphere of nibbana. Even though it may not be absolute or perfect Nibbana, it is Nibbana, just the same. I really like this as an entry point. To me, it provides a really accessible way for each of us in our practice to feel the touch of Nibbana, the, you might say, the outskirts of the unconditioned. And by getting kind of the whiff of that, we can follow its trail back to the source. So this letting go of I and mine, letting go of control, takes a lot of trust. It's one of the things that we grow into. Coming fully into the moment is a huge act of trust. I don't know if you felt this at times, but when you come into this moment very fully, you're sort of naked you've really dropped your defenses. You've dropped the escape into conceptualization. You've dropped your images of yourself and how you'd like to be or how you usually are. You're just open. Your heart is open to feel what is. That's a very naked place. When you meet some great beings, you get the feeling of this quality very much from them, that they've kind of released into something greater. It's not just that they've worked on their positive qualities, kind of like building muscles, you know, the bodybuilding school of mental development, but they've actually let go into something. The Dalai Lama for me has this flavor a lot in his playfulness and his spontaneity. He was at a conference uh, about a year ago at Gethsemane Abbey, which is where Thomas Merton uh, lived when he was a Trappist monk. It was a cross-congregational meeting of Buddhists and Christians, all contemplatives, all people who had spent a lot of time in solitude. And he was there with all these other heavyweights, heavyweights from both sides, the Buddhist side and the Christian side. And it was such a kind of heavyweight gathering that PBS was filming it to show on television. The Dalai Lama was the keynote speaker. And so the, you know, the Klieg lights were on, and the video cameras were rolling, and it was going to be broadcast to 40 or 50 million people later that day, and the Dalai Lama's up there telling about his time at the, at the Abbey. And he said, uh, you know the way the monks here support themselves is they make cheese and they make fruitcake. Yes, I learned this today. They took me on a tour of the Abbey, and they told me this. And every place they would take me they would say, you know, we support ourselves, we make cheese and we make fruitcake. Would you like to try some cheese? And he said, but all I wanted was the fruitcake. <laughs> and then he just giggled, ha, 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 He said, they'd take me somewhere else and they'd say, would you like to try some cheese? And I'd think, no, I just want the fruitcake. <laughs> and then he'd giggle again. In front of the, his hosts at the Abbey, in front of national television and all these other dignitaries, just playing with his own desire force, just like a kid, so innocent. So I think that um, there's something there that we can release into and then live out of and trust from that has this quality of spontaneous playfulness. There's another teacher I enjoy a lot uh, who comes to Marin fairly regularly named Byron Katie Raleigh. Some of you may have uh, run into her. She didn't come out of any particular tradition. She uh, awakened, she said, by herself about 10 or 12 years ago, quite spontaneously, and has now been teaching her understanding. She's someone who I feel has a lot of wisdom and a lot of love. Um, I like her a lot. And she was telling a story about her husband who is a uh, recreational vehicle salesman in uh, Barstow, California. And as you might imagine, there's not a huge sangha in Barstow, California. (laughs) And in fact, her husband doesn't relate to any of this stuff. It's not not his bag of tricks. But because his wife has gotten so into spirituality over the years, he's had to sort of uh, learn to accommodate somewhat. So this is one story that she told about their marriage. She said they were in a supermarket, just doing their grocery shopping, and she had the idea that she had never in her memory uh, been wheeled through the supermarket in a shopping cart. (laughs) And she thought that was something that she would like to experience. And she said she couldn't think of any reason why she shouldn't. So she said to her husband, I'd like to get in the shopping cart and have you wheel me through the supermarket. Would you be willing to do that? And uh, he said, as she says he often does, oh, Jesus Christ, Katie. He really didn't want to do it. But she said that he agreed to do it because he knew that if he hadn't, she would have asked someone else to. (laughs) And then he would have been even more embarrassed. So she jumped in the shopping cart And he wheeled her around the supermarket, and she said, The most interesting thing is that no one would meet her eye. (laughs) Nobody would make eye contact with her, as though everybody was used to seeing a middle aged woman being wheeled through the supermarket every day of the year. Of course. So Byron Katie, I think, has released into something also. Very trusting. Very trusting. So this other thing that we sometimes talk about, that uh, we fall into or we release into, is sometimes called our true nature. Sometimes it's called our Buddha nature. It's what we share with the awakened ones. And it's said that it's in us in every moment already. It's not something that we only attain or we only acquire when we reach awakening, but it's said to be with us here and now in every moment. And it's only the fact of waking up to its presence that constitutes real discovery. Ajahn Mahabua gave a pointer to this. Ajahn Mahabua was a kind of Dharma brother of Ajahn Chah. They both practiced under the same teacher whose name was Ajahn Man. Ajahn Man was a very fierce teacher in the Thai forest tradition. He wandered throughout the forests of Thailand and Laos for about 30 or 40 years. And only very late in life did he ever set up anything like a monastery. Everybody would always want him to stay and teach and be resident. And his whole practice was just wandering through the forests and just teaching as he went. And a number of uh, the great teachers of the last 50 years practiced and trained under him, including Ajahn Chah and Ajahn Mahabua, who is still alive and still teaching in the northeast of Thailand. This is from Ajahn Mahabua. Although all phenomena, without exception, fall under the laws of the three characteristics impermanence, suffering, and not-self. The true nature of the mind doesn't fall under these laws. The natural power of the mind itself is that it knows and does not die. This deathlessness is something that lies beyond disintegration." I find this really beautiful. His pointing is that the very nature of our mind is undying that it holds within it all the phenomena that are coming and going, that are subject to impermanence and suffering and selflessness, but that the nature of the mind itself is not subject to this passing. This nature you could also call our basic goodness. It is what we can trust in, it is what holds us. So let's look a little deeper into what this really is and how we can come to it through our practice. And again, I'll turn to one of um, Howie's favorite gurus and also one of mine, and that's Calvin and Hobbes. This is a strip that came out around uh, December of one year. And Calvin's talking to Hobbes and saying, you know, this whole Santa Claus thing just doesn't make sense. Why all the secrecy? Why all the mystery? If the guy exists, why doesn't he ever show himself and prove it? And if he doesn't exist, What's the meaning of all this? And Hobbes says, I don't know. Isn't this a religious holiday? Calvin says, yeah, but actually I've got the same questions about God. That's curious, isn't it? We may have a really um, deep gut sense of what is trustworthy in the universe, whether we call it the Dharma, or Buddha nature, or God. Or whatever the unconditioned but do we really know what that is it's so delicate because basically this thing can't be seen it can't be heard it can't be touched it can't be grasped why is that it can't be touched because if we could if we could reach out and touch it as an object then it would be something that had come into existence. And if it had come into existence and we could just grab it as an object of our senses, it would also have the nature of passing out of existence. And then it wouldn't be ultimate. It wouldn't be beyond arising and passing. So whatever it is that we're looking for of this ultimate nature, it can't be seen, it can't be touched, it can't be heard. It has to be invisible it has to be intangible, it has to be silent. This is from a medieval Christian mystic named Angelus Silasius. God is a pure no-thing concealed in now and here. The less you reach for that the more it will appear. I'll read it again. God is a pure no-thing concealed in now and here. The less you reach for that, the more it will appear. I like this formulation because it brings out a couple of uh, great points. One is that the touching of that is founded upon trust, and trust comes from relaxing. That's why we often say at the beginning of a sitting, begin from a place of ease. Relax your body and mind. Don't strain. Don't strive. If we can bring in that quality of relaxation along with the alertness, then we're close to this presence. The other thing I like about it is that it really points that the ultimate is found in the here and now. We shouldn't conceive of the ultimate as some separate destination apart from what's naturally arising here and now. It's found right in the midst of the here and now. Suzuki Roshi had this uh, quotation about it. He said, it's necessary to trust in something that has no form or color, but that is always ready to take on form and color. This really perplexed me for a lot of years in my practice. Something that has no form or color, but is always ready to take on form and color. In the Buddhist jargon, form and color are sort of buzzwords. And they basically refer to the world of sight. Everything within the world of sight can be described as having a shape and a particular color, like this zafu. What we actually see when we look around the world are not objects. We only learn over time to recognize them as woman or cushion or chair or man, what we really see are just patches of form and color. So form and color is a a jargon way of saying the world of created appearances, the world of phenomena. So it's necessary to trust in something that is not of that world of appearances, but it's always ready to take on form and color. Now I come from a scientific background myself, and um, when I first heard this quotation, I thought uh, Roshi was pointing to something like raw matter. Something like electrons, protons, neutrons, quarks before they got formed into atoms, molecules, wood, leaves, grass, earth, and so on. But when I thought about it more, I thought that can't be right. Because even protons and electrons have some form and some shape and some qualities of appearing. So I I decided that wasn't what he was talking about. I decided he wasn't talking about anything on that side, the side of matter. But instead, he was more talking about something from this side, the side that sees, the inner experience. That he was pointing to something in the nature of our consciousness itself. Because that's an interesting thing about consciousness. It doesn't actually have form or color, but it's always ready to take on form and color. There's the consciousness of sights. We can also take on sounds, smells, tastes, thoughts, emotions, sensations. Consciousness takes on all those qualities. So I think Suzuki Roshi was pointing to something on the side of consciousness. But in the Buddha's teachings consciousness has a really particular meaning. It's one of the five aggregates the aggregates are considered to be the elements of the human being including body, feeling tone, which we've covered in the instructions, the quality being pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, perceptions, that recognition that knows something is a bell or a man or a bench, mental formations, basically thoughts and images, and consciousness is the fifth. Consciousness, as the Buddha described it, is this quality that knows all of our experience. It's the quality that's on the receptive side of every facet of experience. It's pre-verbal, but it's that which holds the bare sense data. And you can, um, as a synonym, you can think of knowing before any words have come in. So it's just knowing the raw sense data of our experience. Well the Buddha said that all our consciousness is also characterized by coming and going. So that for instance, when you hear the bell, there's a knowing of that sound, but the knowing passes when the sound passes. So consciousness, as the Buddha defined it, arises with sense experience and passes away as that sense experience passes. But maybe the unchanging is somehow related to this. It's interesting if we look at the instructions, you know, we start in the meditation instructions with sounds and then we turn to breath and then body sensations and then emotions and thoughts and the experience in walking, sights, and tastes, until everything eventually is included. and All the changing appearances are included. But what's the one thing that doesn't change in the instructions? What's the thread that weaves all the instructions together? It's mindfulness, isn't it? Whatever the changing objects or appearances, there's always mindfulness at work, or at play. So I wonder if the deathless is somehow related to this quality of mindfulness, of awareness. This is from an Indian teacher named Maharaj. I met my guru when I was 34, and I realized by 37. hmm, Maybe that's a practice we should be doing. (laughs) Pleasure and pain lost their sway over me. I was free from desire and fear. I found myself full, needing nothing. I saw that in the ocean of pure awareness, the numberless waves of the phenomenal worlds arise and subside beginninglessly and endlessly. There's a mysterious power that looks after them. That power is awareness, life, God, whatever name you give it. It is the foundation and ultimate support of all that is, as gold is the basis for all jewelry." So it's not just human beings that have this quality, that have this Buddha nature. It's said that all sentient beings have this. All animals, all creatures that are conscious have this. This is from uh, an old Zen master named Huang Po. Buddhas and bodhisattvas, together with all wriggling things possessed of life, share in this great nirvanic nature we share this with all the wriggling things that are possessed of life. This is our connection, our deepest connection to everything that lives, us and the earthworms. Ajahn Jumnian, who was here last year, um, gave a talk to the, the staff and teachers about this unconditioned nature of mindfulness. And he put it this way, he said the best way to develop a great awareness, and actually the word he used was mahasati, great mindfulness, is to rest your attention within that knowing space of consciousness, in the pure space of knowing. If you understand and can rest in this pure knowing, that's the place of the deathless. From this pure awareness that's unmoved by what arises, Then you see the phenomena of the world, which all have the nature to arise and pass away. Phenomena show their dharmas of impermanence, and this other is the dharma of the deathless. This again is from Ajahn Mahabua. There's no escaping this truth. Whatever arises has to vanish. But whatever is true, whatever is a natural principle in and of itself, won't vanish. In other words, the pure mind won't vanish. This vanishes, that vanishes, but that which knows they're vanishing doesn't vanish. This is what's called the pure mind. So how can we start to get a sense of this in our practice? How can we start to get a flavor for this pure mind? As Ajahn Buddhadasa pointed to, it's at times in the practice when the sense of I and mine is not so strong. When the sense of self with its demands and its needs and its wishes and its dislikes and its hopes and its fears aren't so insistent. That's the time that the mind has a degree of purity, has a degree of freedom in it. So you can begin to investigate what's the feeling of those times when the demands of the eye are not so strong. Really wake up at that point in time. Bring your clear seeing into it. This true nature is really kind of a combination of the brightness and alertness of mindfulness with the calm and tranquility when the uh, defilements are not so strong. So it really needs both sides. It needs the bright, alert energy of mindfulness, and it also needs the tranquility, peacefulness. You can trust in that as having this uh, quality of, of clarity and fullness and deathlessness. This awareness really illuminates everything. You can sometimes feel when you sit and your eyes are closed and you're listening to sounds, how it pervades the whole universe. This quality of awareness contains the farthest stars and galaxies, all the sounds that are arising and passing. And not only does it contain them, but it reveals them. It illuminates them. This awareness itself is empty, has to be empty or it couldn't hold what is. But it's not just a vacant emptiness. It's an emptiness that is pervaded with this quality of knowing, or sometimes it's called luminosity, that it illuminates the arisings. What we are most fundamentally are not the comings and goings those transitory and change. What we are most fundamentally that continues is this empty space in which all appearances arise and pass away and are known. It has two qualities. One is the quality of emptiness. The other is the quality of knowing. You could say that this really is the nature of the mind or the nature of awareness. It's sometimes called our innate wakefulness. It is the nature. We can look at it and see that it's always like that, but we can't grasp it because it's not a thing. We only know it by relaxing into it and feeling its functioning. By that we come to trust more and more that it is there. This nature has always been, it is now, and will always be because it's beyond change. It's beyond coming and going. It's beyond birth and death. Because it's beyond change, it's beyond time. In itself it's timeless. This is another quality of the ultimate. It's like a mirror in that it will reflect anything that appears before it completely and impartially. It reflects the beautiful and the ugly, the painful and the pleasant. It reflects movement as well as stillness. It reflects the defilements as well as the Brahmaviharas. But it's not touched by any of these. It's not harmed by the appearances So fundamentally, it can't be stained, it can't be corrupted. It's not made brighter by happiness, and it's not made darker by suffering. In itself, it has none of the characteristics of greed, aversion, and delusion. So it's free from the very beginning. It is that dimension in us which is already free. So the question is, do you take yourself to be free, here and now, or do you take yourself to be bound? If you identify with the transitory, there'll be bondage in that. That will be subject to birth and death, and what's subject to birth and death is subject to suffering. If you take yourself to be this limitless and pure, empty knowing, then in that there's already freedom. It's not that freedom has to be created, it only has to be seen and trusted. Once you get an intuitive sense of this quality of mind, you can just relax into it. You can start to rest in it. This is from Ajahn Buddhadasa again. When you hear a phrase like Nibbana for everyone, you may shake your head in disbelief and understand that someone has tried to dye a cat just for sale. I don't know if you get the image. It's like painting up a cat. Maybe the cat is partly orange and partly gray, but you spray paint it all black so that you can sell it and get a higher price. If you're a teacher, you'd dye a cat for sale if you wanted to appeal to your students. So he's saying that you might think that I'm just trying to dye a cat just for sale. So you might not have any interest in the subject, but nibbana is a natural condition. It's the cool state of mind when the defilements are absent. So can we tune into that in our practice? When does the mind feel really cooled out? When does it not feel churned up by the forces of liking and disliking, the forces of greed and aversion? We can trust in that. That can become its own path. It's enough simply to rest in that and trust that in resting in that, we are actually tuning ourselves to the unconditioned. We're tuning to Nibbana. And we can trust that that will carry us to freedom. In the Satipatthana Sutta, the Buddha advises us to reflect again and again on our own death and what will happen to our body after death. In traditional Buddhist countries, practitioners are encouraged actually to go to cemeteries and charnel grounds to observe corpses that are decaying in various stages of um, dissolution. We can't do that anymore today because of cemeteries and health codes. So, the modern day equivalent for uh, practitioners in Thailand are autopsies. And as a monk or a nun, you're permitted to go to um, hospitals and observe autopsies being done. So I took advantage of this a couple of times when I was a monk in Bangkok and I went down to a hospital, Rat Hospital, near the parade grounds in downtown Bangkok. I was uh, 32 years old at the time and I had never been next to a dead body. And now I was next to several dead bodies. I could walk right up to them and touch them. And when the coroner came, we took seats in the, in the operating theater. And he put one of these dead bodies on the stainless steel table and began to take it apart. Coming from not even having seen a dead body to watching it being taken apart was completely shocking for me. I mean, I felt like I was getting blown away by observing that. But it was also fascinating. I couldn't take my eyes off the process. So I watched as the coroner dissected one body, which took about 20 minutes, and involved removing all the internal organs, including the brain, and weighing them. Sewed the body back up, went to the next body. I observed this for several bodies in a row. And then we went out to catch a bus back to the monastery. And we were waiting at the parade ground, which is a really busy part of downtown Bangkok, So I was watching all kinds of people go by. Young people, and students, and couples walking hand in hand, and older people who had come down to the marketplace to do their shopping, and dogs were running across the grounds. And I had just come out of seeing these bodies taken apart. And the phrase that came to my mind as I was looking around at everybody walking by is, all I could see was walking corpses. I could only see walking corpses. And then I thought to myself later, what did I mean by that phrase? That's such a strange phrase, a walking corpse. What did it mean to me? And I thought that when I looked at everybody, I could see that the body was no different than those bodies that I had just seen on the autopsy table. No difference at all in the physical form. But these bodies at the parade ground, there was still a brightness that was shining out through the eyes. And I was really struck and in touch with that brightness, that vitality of the life force and of consciousness that was still shining, that I could see in their eyes. And as I got in touch with the characteristics of that brightness, I realized that brightness was completely of this moment, of this present moment. It didn't have any past and it didn't have any future. And that most fundamentally that is what we are. We are this body, that is alert with this present-moment brightness, completely of the present moment. But this brightness has a capacity to receive sense impressions. And because of that capacity, and another peculiar capacity of storing them up, which we call memory, we're able to construct a past. And out of the construction of the past, we're able to project a future. So these things aren't intrinsic to that brightness, but they're sort of built out of the components of it. This brightness is that resting place. This brightness is that pure awareness that is beyond time, beyond birth and death. And when we rest there, that has the quality to hold us, to be our safety, and to carry us through this whole journey freedom. The Buddha was talking to a monk in his day about this quality of trust or faith. And this is what he said about it. The monk's name was Pingya. Pingya, other people have freed themselves by the power of faith. Vakali, Badravuda, and Alavi have all done this. You too should let that strength release you. You too will go to the further shore beyond the draw of death. Let's just sit for a minute together.